Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary with me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So there's... Uh, uh, in the brilliant rollout strategy of uh, of Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns's uh, new book on Trump and Biden and the 2020 election, uh, brilliant rollout strategy that has kept it at the top of the news, but I can't remember the title. So you guys are going to have to Google the title. It doesn't really matter. This shall um, not pass. Brilliant rollout strategy has involved. This shall not pass or something. Right. So it has involved them releasing a story, getting Kevin McCarthy, the House. Uh, a minority leader to say the story isn't true and then six hours later releasing the audio that shows that he's a liar and now they are second or third dang this by releasing even more audio uh, apparently uh, an aid of of mccarthy's uh, understanding the historic nature of what had happened on january 6th and following decided to tape Mac- mccarthy uh and gave um martin and burns the tape um and uh We've already talked about the moral questions of what it's like to be, you know, revealed as a liar and this kind of liar and how politics has changed. There's new audio. They've been they've been releasing audio in tranches. Yeah, that's what new audio. That's what I'm saying. I know. But let me just let me. Yeah, there's new audio, which involves McCarthy going out to the conference. Yeah. Questioning whether people like Matt Gates might have done something illegal in the run-up to January 6th, and should they look into it? What I was, was going to say about McCarthy is that we've, we don't need to litigate the question of he is a liar, and apparently that doesn't matter in politics anymore if it ever did. And part of the reason that it doesn't matter is that people now expect politicians to be liars, and they no longer judge their politicians by by their veracity or their truth telling, except to the extent that you know they want to come up with things that will defend them when other people say that they're liars. So I don't think McCarthy pays any penalty for the lying that he did. Now he's really going to have to twist himself into a pretzel about questioning whether or not you know something needed to be done about the members of his conference who he was or was not sure were part of the uh, insurrectionist movement uh, and may have helped. Uh, the insurrectionist on January 6th. Here's what's interesting, and then we can get into the conversation. Uh, the response uh, of the MAGA right has been to go after Kevin McCarthy for being a liberal. Uh, Tucker Carlson, I believe last night said, if the conference lets if the House Republican Caucus Conference lets Kevin McCarthy get away with this and become speaker, it'll be like just giving the speakership to a Democrat. So I don't even, I can't, the, the, gyrate, the logical gyrations that come up with that, uh, I can't even begin to go down and I've edited Tucker Carlson's prose and he never said anything as incoherent and incomprehensible as that. Uh, where are we in this story? Does it matter? It apparently doesn't matter to the Republican conference, according to reporters who are privy to what's going on in a, in a closed door house conference meeting this morning where McCarthy reportedly, according to Melanie Zanona, um, received a, a standing ovation from the caucus for the conference, rather, after he gave a full-throated defense of the Times tapes. I can't even imagine what the defense would be, given that he's sort of renounced his own views. Uh, nevertheless, oh, yeah, he did say something about all this being hypothetical. Like he was just theoretically entertaining the notion that Donald Trump should resign, that he had discredited himself, and that people like Mo Brooks and Matt Gates might have committed felonies. It's yeah, all just sort of a hypothetical. He was going over scenarios. Scenarios, that's right. Yeah, scenarios. Nonetheless, buffers. they got a lot and of not just And not just McCarthy, Steve Scalise, number two House Republican. It's potentially illegal what he's doing, Scalise said, of Matt Gates. He's putting people in jeopardy, McCarthy said, of Matt Gates, the congressman from Florida. He doesn't need to be doing this. 
We saw what people would do in the Capitol, you know, and these people came prepared with rope, with everything else. I heard these tapes this morning on CNN. Um, Gates responded last night, castigating McCarthy and Scalise as, quote, weak men. I want to remind you that Steve Scalise was the guy who was shot four times or something during the House softball massacre um, and, you know, had to had to basically recover from a near fatal wound done to him. And this whelp, this rich boy, whelp, you know, creep uh, calling him weak. However, I feel about Scalise's behavior, uh, you know, in the wake of January 6th and everything. Uh, to say that Matt Gates is beneath contempt is is unfair to contempt. Um, anyway, uh, while I was protecting President Trump from impeachment, they were protecting Liz Cheney from criticism, said Matt Gates. So congratulations to Kevin McCarthy for sucking up to people like Matt Gates. Really, really great because there's a tape of him questioning Matt Gates's behavior. You know. 16 months ago uh, that McCarthy is already disavowed. Anyway, Christine, as a longtime Washington watcher, uh, how does this all make you feel? Uh, uh, even more cynical than I suppose I've, I've been for a while. I, I think in a broader sense, this is why people are, are no longer trust politicians. It's not that they lie. They've always lied. We've always known they lied. But I was thinking about what, what you just described also in the context of, of J.D. Vance in the Ohio Senate race, where someone who went on the record repeatedly, repeatedly and vociferously attacking Donald Trump is now running with Trump's endorsement and wants the whole world to act like that pivot shouldn't mean anything. The And this is where McCarthy's lack of leadership really is going to come home to roost. The fact that this caucus can't discipline its own crazy members, it's just as frustrating when Republicans do it as when Nancy Pelosi refuses to call out the anti-Semitism of the squad. It's just it's the same rotten way of doing business in Congress. And yes, I know it's your caucus. You got to keep everybody in the fold. You got to be able to get the votes when you need them. I get all that. I get the the sort of sausage making part of it. But these are matters of principle. Uh, many of these, certainly January 6th is, and certainly the anti-Semitism on the left is. And there is the same kind of weird double speak and the same sort of um, obfuscation about those, about what's at stake here. And it's frustrating. And you know what? I, I have a lot of concerns. We were speaking just before we started taping. You know, Republicans are going to have a blowout. What are they going to do with this power? I do not have a lot of optimism that they're going to exercise power well once they achieve it. And they will likely achieve it in the midterms. So it's very disheartening. On the other hand, I do think that it, it it does open up an opportunity for the kind of candidate, I we saw this in Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, but there are others out there on the left and the right, to step through this mess and say, this old way of doing things and this crazy Trump way of doing things aren't getting anything done. We've got we've got to think of new ways of 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 leading. Um, there are just too few of those candidates right now, and there's almost none of them on the right. Except they those potential new candidates face the same sort of MAGA buzzsaw. Yes. I mean, At, in the primaries. Absolutely. That's right. That That's a real problem. Yeah. Yes. I I had a broader thought about January 6th and the horror of January 6th. And yes, it was a horror. And anybody who doesn't think it was a horror, I mean, you can keep listening to us, but we're never going to not say that it was a horror. And that, and I, I think all three of us believe that Trump should have actually been removed from office even after he had was no longer president because this sort of thing should not have been allowed to happen and should should have been uh, censured properly by the entire uh, House and Senate as a, as a as a warning shot to anybody who tried to follow it further. But I'm thinking about the lost opportunity here for Joe Biden and where the Republicans and Biden are now 15 or 16 months since January 6th. If you were a Democrat and you looked at January 6th with horror, with the absolute horror that it deserved to be looked at, and you believe that our democracy was in peril as a result of it, which is understandable, and you are seeing everything that is going on uh, with the kind of, uh, you know, the alarm that is being expressed over the effort to install election officials in states at the Republican level who believe the election was stolen and all of that. The refusal or inability of the Democrats and these Democrats to understand that what Biden needed to do if his purpose was to end the Trump era, to end Trump's influence in politics, 
and to bridge us to a new era in which we could clean up the mess was to tack to the center and do what he could to solidify a non-Trump, non-Republican future, uh, which would have meant not spending $6 trillion, not, not you know, going for you know, a kind of neo, near socialism, not believing that he should be LBJ and FDR combined, but that he should be Bill Clinton or he should be a consensus candidate of some sort that he Joe should Manchin go. Joe Manchin is who he should have been. Joe Manchin. Okay, Joe Manchin. <laughs> fine. Exactly. Okay. And that the lost opportunity here, if you are, a, if you believe in this alarmist scenario, you should be madder than anybody else uh, that Biden so completely screwed up his chance that not only are the Republicans going to come roaring back in 2022 with a gigantic victory in the House and Senate, the, as each day passes, that seems to be sort of clearer and clearer. But there is no Republican reckoning. There is no fight on the right about how to clean up the right afterwards. That fight was over because uh, Biden tacked left, and in tacking left, he he at least solidified the Republican notion that they were there to do whatever they could to prevent Biden from succeeding in his aims and that they didn't have to clean up their own mess. And Biden did absolutely nothing to make sure that the Republicans who voted for him or the independents who voted for him in 2020 and for Democrats in 2018 were solidified in their support for him because he governed like he was Bernie Sanders and not like, yeah, he was Joe Manchin. And the, the, the historical lost opportunity here, and I'm not saying I want, that's what I would have wanted Biden to do or not do. I'm saying if you believe that the single most important thing was to prevent, the, it was to end the Trump era, particularly after January 6th, the agenda that Biden pursued with the full-throated support of the Democratic Party was insanity. And not only was it insanity because it has had the results that we've seen, the parlous results, 8% inflation, all of that, but because they retreated into their own comfort zone rather than seeking to expand their zone and change American politics. That's my, I don't even know, this is slightly an ancillary thing, but I'm just thinking about Kevin McCarthy and McConnell and people like that who were so sure that the worst thing that they'd ever seen had happened, it was comfortable for them to retreat from that view because Biden tacked so far to the left. He did absolutely nothing to tempt them into or, or to uh, cause a rush of uh, support for him in ways that would have tempered their own ability to be so resolutely harsh toward him or to be so resolutely dismissive of him. He made it easy for them. He has made it easy for Trump to stage a comeback in 2024. And we can talk about, you know, the, the new polling result that, that, that suggests that, you know, the, the scenario that I was laying out that maybe he was finished is clearly, you know, not necessarily true, but John, where do you, where do you guys I think stand on what I just said? Well, I think Democrats who believed in these in these Bernie-esque policies didn't see them as potential problems. You got to remember, they believed in the rightness of these things and thought that they would bear fruit that would be beneficial to the country and that would be recognized by most Americans as, as a, a job well done. You know, on the that's true. And on the other hand, there was always a line. And Noah, I think, even collect has collected some string on this. There was always a line during 2021 that they needed to go big and go fast because they were going to be destroyed in 2022 because midterms are bad for the incumbent. They ended up with control of the House and Senate and they had two years and they had to do everything they could possibly do in 20 years and two years before it was all taken away from them. And they ended up doing this one thing, right? They get, got this one huge bill and then they foundered on the rocks of this demented ambition to get three and a half trillion and then three trillion and then first six trillion and then, and then, and then two trillion 
uh, on Build Back Better, something that Biden couldn't even come up with a defense of that was explicable to people who were not already in the fold or or even you know further to the left than Joe Biden uh, than than Joe Manchin. Right now, I mean, basically, they were just we got to do it now, got to do it. So I don't know if that's true belief or if that's desperate. But it's like we got to do it because the American people aren't with us, and we got to get it done before they, you know, before they throw us out on our ass. Yeah, it's very convoluted logic. It's we got to get this done really fast because the American people don't like it, but they will like it once it's an attractable feature of of our society. Um, that's sort of what they tell themselves about every entitlement expansion. And what we were talking about for the last year and a half was basically a gigantic entitlement expansion. <clears throat> but I'm skeptical that policy has any relevance whatsoever in the thinking of the average primary voter, who re- Republican primary voter, who's apt to reward the behavior that we see from the mega right um, in the House conference and in statewide primaries and particularly influential statewide primaries. Um, it seems to me that it remains a, a contest to display the utmost fealty to Trump and Trumpism, by which I mean the president's all-consuming sense of personal grievance and desperate need to avenge the slights against him by the commanding heights of culture and politics, um, because their struggle is the same struggle. They, too, are beset by forces they cannot see that have robbed them of their due in life, and that has been his appeal to the populist elements within the Republican coalition. And it seems to be his intractable appeal. Policy doesn't play much of a much of a feature there in part in particular because the alternatives that the MAGA right um, advocates in policy terms are not all that dramatically distinct from progressive policy prescriptions. They are writ small, but they are nevertheless dramatic interventions in the private economy by the public sector designed to shore up and support certain preferred constituencies. Okay. But that, that, that is absolutely true. But, um, Biden is foundering uh, as a result of policy policies that he advocated legislation that he you know, yeah, it, sought. And I don't okay. want to, I don't want to oversimplify it, but it may simply be a case of over promising and under delivering. He said, this is what he would do. He didn't do it. No, what he did was bad enough though. He did, he did something. I mean, granted I mean, that's was, what's, you know, that's what's, that's what's creating the flight from, from him among his own base and among independents. Right. In other words, in this case, that's why the Republicans don't matter in this calculation. What I'm saying is that Biden found himself in a position where he could have altered the political landscape of the United States. And what he did was serve his internal um, ideological constituency and particularly satisfy the ideological constituency that wasn't sure that they trusted him all that much. So he was kind of, he was like, like, like sucking up to them. And I just think it was exact. It was logistically for 2022 and it was the wrong play. But I think, again, if you go to the notion that um, the country is at risk, uh, he, nothing that he has done, was an effort to say, come on in, the water's fine to people who might have felt the same way. In fact, he just said, I'm going to be Bernie Sanders for a while. Come on in or not, you dog-faced pony soldier. Oh, and I'm going to, I'm going to humiliate us in Afghanistan. While I'm at it, let me humiliate us in Afghanistan, because I know you love that. You know, you know, I, the, I've been a I've been a senator for eighty seven thousand years, and the one thing I know is that it's really great when America bugs out of a conflict. That's really popular. But the the fear that the the country was at risk and and threatened foremost by Trump and Trumpism and the events of January sixth, sort of coupled with the fear that the that the country is also threatened by its cruelty and its meanness and its need to uh, have a reckoning with its with its history and, and with uh, disenfranchised people. It was kind of one big jumble, actually. So I so it was it made sense that if you that the same people who f- thought that democracy was it was under threat were also the same people that thought 
big things needed to happen policy-wise, big, bold, left-leaning things. I there's mean, also was- the, the, there's a chicken little problem for the Democrats, right? The sky was constantly falling. So January 6th, plenty of us on the right were like, oh man, this is bad. Like we're, we're in total agreement that this was, this was unprecedented. This was bad. As you said earlier, John, you know, this, this is, if, if something is an impeachable offense, surely this was, um, but then they did the same, they had the same tone of over the top hyperbole and rhetoric about voting rights in Georgia. Like it was just, they, they took things that were actually politically um, uh, debatable and turn those into world ending discussions too. you know, Jim Crow 2.0, all this, this absolutely over the top thing, which I think alienated people who were a little bit right of center, didn't want to see more, wanted to move past both the pandemic and the Trump years and saw in Biden a candidate who promised that. And the next thing you know, they're being scolded for their white privilege and told that, you know, if you don't agree with this extreme extension um, and, and all of these policies that you're both racist and backward looking and just like Trump. I mean, it it all goes to the same place, which is that Biden had a chance to be a larger figure than he had any apparently any capability of understanding or reaching for because he was seduced by the idea that he could be a larger figure from a different era. When, uh, you know, in in 1933, when the public had completely lost faith uh, in, uh, you know, in sort of... uh, uh, capital in, in capitalism, let's say. And so statism was a real option. And then in 1964-65, when, um, when there was this wild optimism about the possibility that America's unbelievable economic growth uh, could lead to the end of poverty, that we could actually end poverty as it was understood through these great society programs. Um, that was not the period that we were in. That That's not where we were according to according to what we saw we were fractious and divided um as never before uh, one party believed that you know the election was fraudulent the other party believe, had believed that previous elections were fraudulent firming up american support for the american political system was biden's task that's what he said he wanted to bring a new you know normalcy back to politics and end this hate and this and that and the other thing yeah, and instead he essentially endorsed or implicitly endorsed the view that America is a is a structurally racist uh, country in which it, in which it was time for the you know scales of justice to be weighted one way rather than the other because for too long it had been weighted in the other direction or something like that, and that's all fine if you want to play in that sandbox, but you're not going to expect you know, but you're not going to you're not going to get people on your side who don't already believe that. And just as in 2017 and 2018 on this podcast, we kept saying Trump needs the Republican Party to get bigger, not smaller. He needs his following to get bigger, not smaller. Biden did exactly the same thing, although in his case, with massive policy decisions and massive policy efforts as opposed to personal peccadillos and personally um, uh, controversial or questionable behavior. But it's the same thing. Biden's ended up, you know, losing 10, 15 percent off his off off the 15 percent of the people who voted for him are now saying they don't like the job he's doing. And it's like a third of the people who voted for him say they don't like the job he's doing. I think it makes sense uh, from Biden's perspective in the in the following way, <clears throat> in that he has waited his whole life to be president, long life with multiple failed attempts to get at the White House in his history, finally gets there and he's supposed to say, I will be remembered for, for being ordinary. That was never going to happen. He, he, was, he had to sort of shoot for the moon. In a funny way, though, what I'm saying would be a shooting for them. Would, 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 would in effect be shooting for the moon rebalancing the american ideological landscape or the partisan landscape is the work that lasts for decades it's not just you know passing a bill that spends a lot of money uh, you know it, it 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 alters the entire country's way that it goes forward 
But again, you know, Biden is a fool and he's always been a fool and he's and he's been his presidency has been foolish. I mean, I think if you were going to look at the presidency as it's been right, you you would actually I'm not saying you'd say it was evil. You wouldn't say it was it. It's been a very foolish presidency. He's done foolish things that have had consequences against him that he had no one ever gamed out uh, because um, he's a fool and he doesn't understand, you know, and he's never actually had to be, he's never, the buck has never stopped with him in that sense. He was one of a hundred senators. Then he was a vice president. You know, his decision-making was never determinative almost about anything, right? It was always in consensus with other people, always hiding behind other people's skirts, whatever. And he's been very foolish, but he could, he could have not been foolish. Uh, maybe he could, maybe not. I mean, maybe if you're a fool, you can't be anything but foolish. But um, just I'm going to say on know, the Af- uh, Afga- Afghanistan point, John, that you had mentioned before and talking about yeah. foolish things. Yeah. The administration is not done dealing with that story. Uh, it's it's not breaking through right now for all, all sorts of reasons, especially because of the war in Ukraine. Um, and of course, because of our domestic problems and inflation, but the state that we left Afghanistan in what's going on there now is extraordinary. And when that story breaks through, it is going to haunt that administration, the the Biden administration like crazy. There is, they are facing mass, mass, mass starvation over there. I was reading a piece today in the wall street journal. People are selling their children. They are selling their kidneys um, to make, Sense, pennies, uh, to 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 eat one or two meals a day. You know, it took more than a year for the um, the situation in uh, Vietnam and the rest of Indochina after the fall of Saigon. It took a year, year and a half, for word of the killing fields to come out of Cambodia. It took two years for the boat people to really start becoming an issue. Like you're right. Like that, the notion that, yeah, the notion that they're done with this is, 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 um, I mean, I think that's a, a, a very solid point and solid points are the kinds of things that you get and you will get every day. If you get David Bonson's book, there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. You've heard me talk about it before. David runs the Bonson Group, which has three and a half billion dollars under management. And so, you know, he sort of knows where he speaks. A lot of people trust him with their trust him with their investments and their 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 life wealth. And um, they trust him because he has an uncommon understanding of the interplay between politics, policy and ideas. And that is what is revealed in there's no free lunch which is a daily primer on on economics and ordered liberty with quotes from great thinkers and analyses of specific ideas in economics that help explain them in a both um, compact and rigorous way. So uh, you will do no better as a gift, as a way of instructing a young person who may be teetering on the verge of one form of ideological commitment or another to go to Amazon, to go to Barnes and Noble or wherever you get books and order David Bonson's There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Noah, talk to us about J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance um, is what he received Donald Trump's uh, endorsement late last week, I suppose, Uh, over a week ago. And we got some fresh polling out of the Ohio race, which has not been polled very uh, frequently given how competitive it is. Uh, and he's J- J.D. Vance after sort of, uh, you know, hovering in third, fourth place in this race, a tight race, but nevertheless behind some other bigger names, some more entrenched figures in the Ohio Republican Party. He surged into the lead with all of 23 percent, but a crowded field, um, some of whom are actively vying for the the MAGA lane. Some are not. Um, but this, the Trump endorsement seems to have clarified things for some Ohio voters. A full quarter of them are still on the fence or un, uh, unwilling to tell pollsters whom they support or if they support anyone at all. Um, nevertheless, he's in the poll position. He's in a very good position considering the state of the field. Um, as we said the other day, there's you can kind of squint and see the path for the sort of uh, more establishmentarian figure, I think, in this race, as opposed to figures, there really is only one in my view, uh, to sort of 
slide in if the if there's a, a multi MAGA pile up and everybody sort of bumps their heads on the way to the pole position first past the post possible. It's unlikely. Uh, but there's a counterattack brewing. Uh, the Club for Growth, which is backing Josh Mandel, is out with an ad this morning going square after uh, J.D. Vance for being a, quote, fraud. Um, features a variety of uh, quotes from uh, Vance when he was a never Trump Republican in 2016, early 2016, um, where he you know, savaged uh, Donald Trump and Donald Trump's uh, particular appeal and his style. And all the, you know, the actors in the piece are, you know, very, very, sort of a very, uh, you know, if only the czar knew what was happening in the countryside feel to it. Does Trump know? Does Trump know what J.D. Vance said about him? He couldn't possibly because you know, he's savaging him personally. And because this is very much a cultish movement and a, a personal slight is a grave offense. But this also sort of assumes that the committed died in the wool MAGA voter is deeply concerned about inauthenticity, which is a proposition that is laughable on its face, given the avatar of their particular movement and his complete inauthenticity and flagrant, uh, flagrant insincerity, and you know uh, attempts to to make you reckon with it. Like he he doesn't even he doesn't even apologize for it. He doesn't he doesn't conceal it artfully. Uh, Donald Trump is very. Uh, flagrant in his uh, in his um, uh, attempts to cast himself as something that he is not, and nobody seems to care. So the notion here that this counterattack uh, by the Mandel forces will be successful seems to me highly unlikely. Well, Can I just add something to that. Yeah, go ahead. Trump knows. Not only does Trump know. Trump loves when he can break a former adversary and bring him to heel. That, like to yes, him, that that's that's the greatest thing ever. No, that I was going to say exactly that the narcissist loves when the people who were attacking him then come around to his or her side and say, you know what, I was wrong. And then that it fuels the sort of uh, lack of self-awareness. Yes. And the thing about Vance, Vance is such a disappointment in a number of ways. But the, but this idea that he was always a populist. No, he was not always a populist. He escaped a background that uh, people on the left love to hear described to them in kind of exotic terms. And he could speak about it in their language because he actually was educated and in their class when he wrote the book and talked about his past and they loved it. He was he seemed to be this perfect bridge figure who was like giving them this insight into the exotic you know, world of poor white trash. And wow, wasn't this fascinating? And isn't he just an interesting guy? Then he went full MAGA and they're all sort of shocked. But, you know, in fact, he he's he's doing he's taking a, a path that Tucker Carlson before him has trod. And it's in part why Carlson is one of his big boosters and, and Trump's son as well. And he's not a populist. He's a performer and he's going to succeed as a performer if he wins the Senate race. But this is the, this is why the Mandel strategy is, and the Club for Growth strategy rather is, is so offensively condescending. Do they think Ohio voters don't know that J.D. Vance is an abject fraud? That he, he he and his well-heeled wife moved their family to downtown San Francisco and sent their kids to San Francisco schools after getting Ivy League education and representing the nation's most well-heeled interests. I think they don't know this. Do they think they don't know Donald Trump lives on Fifth Avenue in New York City? Are they not familiar with the bad? Do they think they haven't compartmentalized and rationalized themselves out of these contradictions years ago? No. I, look, um, I'm looking at the commentary review of J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy by Kevin Williamson. Um, what's interesting about J.D. Vance, I'm just going to read a little bit, okay? Uh, this is uh, published in October of 2016, okay? Vance's memoir really is not, despite its marketing, a tale of economic priva privation among the Kentucky Scots-Irish exodus. It is closer to the opposite. His Kentucky exile grandparents are secure and prosperous, in spite of their own humble origins and a long period of alcohol-fueled domestic strife, they own a nice four-bedroom home and drive new high-end cars, convertibles even. Growing up in a small town in Ohio in the 1990s, Vance lived in a household with an annual income exceeding $100,000, or the equivalent of about $175,000 a year in today's 2016 dollars. He had a close and extended family, including grandmother who read to him and a grandfather who helped get him get ahead of other children in math. 
which served him well after college and law school at Yale. Vance went on to become the principal of a Silicon Valley investment firm. He is 31 years old. His family was indeed miserable, but theirs wasn't the misery of poverty and privation. It was the misery of people determined to be miserable at any price. And then he talks about his mother's drug addiction and uh, various other things. The point here is that J.D. Vance has now cast himself as a tribune of, uh, as, as, the, uh, as the personal avatar of people of whom he is not one. In that sense, he's a perfect exemplar of Trumpism, right? Trump is an inauthentic, uh, is, is inauthentic in this way because he grew up rich and he was, you know, lives on Fifth Avenue and all of that. But, he, but the one thing that the two of them have in common, though it's unclear why Vance has it the way Trump has it, is a hatred for the establishment. Trump, uh, Trump has never been a, has never been sort of a creature of the establishment. They've always hated him. They made fun of him. Spy Magazine made fun of him in the 80s. He's always been a sort of figure of sport. Vance was coddled collected and made a star by the establishment, albeit a slightly, you know, off-center part of the establishment. That's Amy Chua, was his mentor at the Yale Law School. David Frum uh, published him for the first time on David Frum's blog. And he published this book, which is, it was an effort to explore why things were going wrong in Ohio from a deeply critical perspective. The perspective was that that the people that he grew up with or the people that he knows or his mother and stuff like that denied their personal responsibility, denied their responsibility to take care of themselves and uh, and had therefore been excluded from the American dream because of this denial. And now he has become an apologist for the very things that his book was a criticism of and in which he in the book represents having to learn hard lessons from pretty much from the military about how not to go down that path himself, the path that other kids in his town uh, went down. And in that sense, what's fascinating is, is his betrayal of his, of the very thing that made him a star, the very perspective, the lapidary perspective. Hillbilly Elegy is a wonderful book. The, 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 the idea that the things that come out of that guy's mouth and JD is written for us, by the way, go to commentary.org or, you know, go to Google search JD Vance and commentary. You can read, he wrote a piece about, um, about uh, Paul Ryan's hometown, a book about Paul Ryan's hometown for commentary. Uh, he's, you know, I like him personally, or I've been, I, I used to like him. I doubt, I don't know whether I'd like him anymore. Um, it's a very weird thing, and that's this is part of the the absolute thing that 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 Christine and, and Abe are saying that um, that uh, the betrayal of yourself is a very important element in winning over somebody like Trump. If you've said that he's you know the worst you know the worst thing that could ever happen to America, yeah, you 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 know, and I guess maybe in ultimately not to be too like. Uh, I don't to go too far, but you know, do you, you, in the end, it's not enough to swear fealty to big brother, right? If you're Winston Smith, you have to love big brother. The last sentence of 1984 is he loved big brother. Um, now I don't know if that, I mean, I assume Noah thinks it's all cynicism, nihilism on Vance's part. It probably is. Um, Certainly, we have an example of it in the and power hunger. I mean, just to, yeah. there's a very different yeah. species of cynicism, which is just absolute desperate craving for uh, the power of being a movement leader. A lot right. of the but, people in our orbit have right. been have succumbed to that temptation. But and this is a weird analogy, then, you know, in 2018, uh, uh, nobody ran a, a more kind of oleaginously suck up campaign for office in in trumpian terms than ron desantis remember the ads it was, it was just gross like it was a kind of you know fandom worship weird creepy then he he, he ends up becoming governor and his immediate uh purpose then covid came in and complicated everything was to show that he was 
basically it's like, okay, that's how I ran. Now I'm actually going to govern like a rational, responsible and a competent conservative manager. That that's what I'm going to be. So his, his point ultimately implicitly was I said and did what I had to do to get the nomination and become governor, but that's not, that's not what my purpose is. My purpose is to like show you how it can be done right. And maybe Vance has the same idea. Who knows? It certainly sounds like he does. It certainly sounds like he is now a true believer. And again, a betrayer of everything that he believed in like five or six years ago, which is something we've seen from other people in our ambit, but I'm not going to name any, any names. You can guess who I'm talking (laughs) about when I I say in our ambit. Can I add though, that it's not necessarily the only option for someone who wants to achieve the power that I agree with Noah, that Vance uh, so clearly wants, because Glenn Youngkin didn't do that. And now I get that Virginia is a different, you know, electorate, et cetera, et cetera, off your election, all this, all this business, but he ran, he kind of threaded the needle. He didn't go full on slavering MAGA, you know, and, but he also, you know, he didn't completely denounce Trump either. He was like, I'm my own guy. I'm here for the for the state of Virginia. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I disagree with. Here's what I think voters are asking for and not being heard about. And he won. And I think that and, and you know, his opponent actually did try to make him out to be a fascist in a fleece fest. It didn't work. So it's it, it, it's a choice that these Republicans are making. And as a result, we're getting our friend Josh Kraschauer has a great piece in National Journal talking about all the terrible Republicans running for state and uh, statewide office in places like Arizona and Michigan. And they're just bad candidates like we're getting bad candidates candidates running for offices. So how are we going to expect to be a good, you know, the Republican Party is not, I'm a conservative, not a Republican, but the Republicans are going to have a hard time governing on any sort of principle if these are the people who are running for office. Yeah, but Glenn, Glenn Youngkin ran for office as a, as a competent managerial figure, right. not a not not a, a figure with Ideal, the power right. personality. It's certainly not cultural power. Um, but he, he, fought, he was fighting the culture leader. war, but he was my, fighting the culture war in his campaign. Basically, that's how he won on the education CRT stuff. He might he did so. Yeah, he did so with a smile and without a chip on his shoulder. And, and that's, that's just right. not, and that's just not and satisfying. We, and also we're living now right through the first presidency without a cult of personality around it in a decade and a half. And it ain't going so well. Right. OK, so uh, let me just uh, pull that. It isn't. And uh, and we could talk. We should talk a little more after the break about, uh, you know, why just because J.D. Vance is doing well, that doesn't you know, that, that can be overread. OK, uh, but first we got to talk about fast growing trees, because when it comes to caring for your plants, know how matters. That's why fastgrowingtrees.com's experts curate thousands of plant varieties that will thrive in your specific climate location and needs. No waiting in lines, no messy cars from hauling plants all over town because you order online or over the phone and your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. Plus, they're growing in care. Advice is available 24-7, whether you're looking for increased privacy, shade, or adding some natural beauty to your yard. Fast-growing trees have the perfect plants and the expertise to help you find them. Even if you've never had a green thumb, they'll make you feel like you do. One million home gardeners have already seen what fastgrowingtrees.com can do for them. Noah, you just spent a lot of money on fast-growing trees even though we might've been able to get you samples for free, but you did it anyway. Yeah. And I'm, you're happy. Well, I want those free samples, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but yes, I just ordered a whole bunch of trees. The shopping experience was great. I have yet to receive the trees and I am fully prepared to review them when I get them, but the shopping experience and the, and the, what I saw on, online, they're um, just the, the litany of, fr- of fruit trees and, you know, uh, hybrids and things that are adapted to your climate is, is really quite impressive. So you should check it out. And Noah, you're going to get that 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, which means you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. So go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary right now, and you'll get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary, fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. And now Noah is going to have to speak again about a product that he likes that we we got for him. Uh, that In this case, he did get a sample. That is Bowling Branch Sheets, the best organic cotton threads on earth, 100% for superior softness and a better night's sleep. Did you know that thread count is a myth? It doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they're not the best threads possible. And Bowling Branch's sheets aren't just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft at the start. They get softer with every wash. Noah, is that your experience with the Bowling Branch Sheets? That is my experience. I think we got these back in November, and we haven't slept on another pair a set of sheets 
since they go off, they go in the wash, they go right back on. Um, we love them. We love the color. We love the feel. Uh, and actually, we're looking into buying another set because you probably need two sets for your for your bed. Um, but then I went and that's what I call an endorsement. That's what I call an endorsement because the signature hem sheets from Bowen Branch are a bestseller for a reason. Highest quality threads on earth. Sheets made with threads so luxurious they're beloved by three U.S. presidents. You'll immediately feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets, which come in nine versatile colors and all sizes from twins up to California kings. They fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags. So making your bed is easier than ever. And a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. Miss the Bone Branch April sale? You won't if you do it now, but if you're close to missing it, your listeners get exclusive access to a post-sale 20% site-wide discount through the end of April with promo code commentary at bowenbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code commentary for 20% off through the end of April. So um, uh, we're going to have a result next Tuesday night uh, in Ohio, and we'll see what the Trump effect will be there uh, it could be determinative and yet we as we said the other day we have uh, pretty firm results in um in georgia uh where the essentially anti-trump candidate now brian kemp is blowing away the maga the trump catamite candidate david purdue by 25 points or 22 points or something like that um and uh here's a here's an interesting theory then so uh the Republicans see the wreckage in Georgia, the wreckage that Trump foisted upon them. They see Republicans that he got 100,000 people to stay home and got them to Democratic senators, Republicans. They see that Brian Kemp has been resolute, and they see that Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, has been resolute. And according to the polling, those guys are being rewarded by the Republican electorate they're not being punished. They are being rewarded. And maybe it's because in Ohio, Trumpism is all theoretical. That is to say, or not theoretical, it's like it, it's Trumpy. Trump had a practical effect on Georgia that that you know has had a has had a had an enormous national effect, right? Because it want, it basically pushed, gave Democrats control of the Senate. And the voters the Republican voters in Georgia appear ready to punish Trump in some fashion, even in a slightly, you know, subdued fashion, because they probably still like him to some degree. Uh, but they're not doing as well, and they're not. Uh, the polling suggests they are. They are not. They're not going in his direction. So maybe the closer you get to the election disaster, the more discomfited voters are, not the more encouraged. We'll see what happens in Arizona. Uh, we'll see what happens in Michigan, right? Those are the those are the three states, right? Pennsylvania, that, that, that Pennsylvania's Pennsylvania, yeah. Kind of got. I, I guess he, I'm, he endorsed Oz, right? He endorsed, endorsed Oz, but he, Oz. but he but he didn't endorse Oz because Oz said the election. He endorsed Oz because Oz is on TV. I mean, he literally said he endorsed Oz because Oz was on TV. Yeah, well, I, I mean, mean it, the guy isn't the most yeah. discerning. That's not breaking news. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the there's some reasonable evidence we can we can see the outlines of a trump loss in in the pennsylvania primary as well this is a more establishmentarian candidate who seems to have more sticking power but i wouldn't i wouldn't hang my reputation on that but it does look like he's at least staring down the barrel of uh, some mixed results shall we say in in right in upcoming primaries uh and of course the whole point here is that if it's it um i'm just check on what the date is of the Pennsylvania primary, that's May 17th. So that's three weeks from now. So, um, you know, a lot can happen. We don't know. Uh, again, if you had to bet, you would bet that Trump will be the nominee in 2024. Uh, you would bet that it's, it's obviously better to have voters think that you um, think well of Trump than that you think poorly of Trump. That's, 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 that's without question. But then with, this brings us back to the opening topic about Kevin McCarthy and the January 6th and, 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 and McCarthy and Scalise and McConnell's own worries about, about Republicans who may have been complicit or, or, or involved in, in, in ideas about how to 
about how to, you know, overturn the election or pressure Pence in some fashion to overturn the election, whatever. Um, well, that's going to also dominate a lot of the news cycle over the summer when all those are, when, you know, aren't they having here? It's going to be a big, it's going to re- re- come back. The January 6th commission is, is slated to be releasing a lot of stuff in the summer. I, correct me if I'm wrong. That's going to be, right. and that's the idea. The timing of it is, of course, to influence in part how people vote in November. I, uh, it, uh, color me skeptical because they'll 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 screw it up. Yeah. Well, they're already like there's so many leaks. Always We've screw heard it up. The whole thing. <laughs> I feel like I've already yeah. read the report. Yeah. It's a but lot these of committee, these committees always screw it up. They always do. They overplay their hand. They're ugly. They're unpleasant. Uh, you know, people become stars on these committees, engage and infuriate enormous numbers of people. The more they rage and infuriate people, the more heroic they seem to their own crew. Like you know. I don't know. Adam Schiff became a, you know, became a, a big deal. And, you know, I, I, I would, I would submit that Adam Schiff has, he's been, he's been better for the Republican cause than he's been for the Democratic cause. Same was true of Jim Jordan uh, going the other way in some of these hearings. So, you know, people don't like the way people comport themselves hearings. We haven't even talked they about that because congressmen are, you know, we haven't even talked about it, and I don't think it's just because it's so irrelevant. Um, Donald Trump's being held in contempt of court by uh, New York's attorney general's office. Uh, not but by a judge, not by, not by the attorney general, by a judge, oh, by a judge. Who, who, who said that he was not complying with an attorney general. Oh, and attorney general's investigation. Yeah, you're yeah. right. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't think that's going to have any effect because uh, I think everybody almost implicitly understands that that's a giant fishing expedition. Um uh you want the fishing expedition if you hate Trump and you're a Democrat and you 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 dismiss it if you're not because you assume it's a fishing expedition. Um does that do you have a do you have a difference of opinion there? No. Anyhow. All right, so uh gotta go. Uh thanks very much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow for Abe Christina Noam John Pot Hortz. Keep the candle burning.